0: Our lesson this morning came from the book of Amos in your Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Amos. We're going to revisit that book here this evening. Um, And as we do so, we're going to kind of finish, uh, we we started kind of walking through the book of Amos up to the point where Amos confronts or is confronted by a priest of Bethel, uh, who uh, in northern Israel offers uh, worship at the pagan or the the idolatrous altar at uh, Bethel. And he basically tells Amos, you're not wanted here. We don't want your message here. No one's listening to you here. The king doesn't want you here. Go home. Go back to southern Judah. Go do your prophesying there. Go eat your bread there. The logic of that is basically he thinks that Amos is the type of prophet who, as long as you pay him, he'll preach what you want him to say. So go down to Judah. They'd love to pay you for this message. They'd much rather hear it than we would. So go there, eat your bread, do your prophesying, but don't speak here anymore. This is a royal palace. This is a sanctuary of of, uh, of worship. Don't come here and do your preaching. And so we talked about how Amos's call was a, a burdensome one. Not every call seems to be as burdensome. Uh, I was I was uh, uh, having a conversation recently, and you know, like. When I think about my ministry position, I really like it, you know. Uh, I like where I am, and I like what I do. I love getting to teach. I think, the, uh, by and large, the audience is receptive, and I think, by and large, people are, you know, very positive and encouraging towards me. I don't have to deal with a lot of what Amos does. I like to hope, and this is the type of thing you have to watch yourself about, I, have, I like to hope that if things ever changed in my life to where I had the choice between speaking the truth even though it was hard or doing what's easy and enjoyable i like to hope i would still always choose to speak the truth i like to hope that if things get more burdensome i will bear that burden but i know a lot of times that's that's the the difficult choice that people have to make when it comes to serving the lord you can often do the easy thing and sometimes the easy thing is not doing anything so sometimes we get so caught up in comfortable uh, ministry, comfortable Christianity, comfortable just coming, sitting on the pews, singing a few songs and going home and living our lives, that we never put on a burden, that we never challenge ourselves. We never receive a challenge from the Lord. And I think Amos is a good example of someone who he could have just kept doing what he was doing. He was a sheep herder. He tended sycamore figs. He just lived his life in Southern Judah, but all of a sudden he had to leave his home, leave his family, go to a hostile environment and preach a terrible message, a really hard one, a dreadful one, one that is going to cause people to be angry, one that will cause priests of Bethel to come out against him, and kings like Jeroboam to come out against him. But that's the burden he had to bear. And so we talked a little bit about difficult calls and how sometimes the difficult call is the one that we need to be willing to accept. Uh, you you see other calls like, you know, Moses didn't have an easy call. He was out, uh, you know, he was, I think he had made up his mind as to how he was going to spend the rest of his life. He was out in Midian. He was going to be a shepherd. He was going to do, live his life there quietly uh, in solitude. But then he got called to go the last 40 years of his life were kind of epic. God called him to something grand and huge, but it was difficult. and, And it changed everything he had in store for himself. We need to always as we make plans, which there's nothing wrong with making plans, you should make plans, it's, it's wise to make plans for your future, but always within them, be very aware of the fact that God can change them, and he has every right to, and you should be willing to let him. God is the one who can make those types of decisions. And I think Amos is someone who found himself in that situation. We talked about the book of Amos uh, you know, he starts off in the first two chapters uh, kind of drawing a circle around Israel of judgment and then blasting them right in the middle of it. And that judgment uh, will then continue on for chapter after chapter. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 are these sermons against Israel uh, for different reasons, but most of them center around the way that they treat uh, the people who are uh, the most disenfranchised or oppressed or, or the people who are minimized in their culture, whether they are poor people who can't afford bribes and so they don't get justice when they go to the gate. Or in the marketplace, we'll see here in a little bit, the scales are dishonest, so that people end up being cheated out of their goods. And all of those types of problems, those tend to be the types of things that Amos is focusing on. He ends up talking about uh, giving two big woes, you know, exclamations of lament to Israel uh, about the fact that they might still go and worship But God has grown to despise their worship because their worship is without truth in their lives. Like, they worship with song and solemn assembly, but at the same time, there's injustice and unrighteousness flooding the streets. And he says, I'd much rather see justice and uh, righteousness than your hollow worship. He then gives a woe about those who are at ease in Zion, the people who think that— that they, they can just lie on their ivory beds and that uh, they can just be comfortable and they can eat whatever they want and drink whatever they want and they get fat and they play their music and they just have the most easy lives of luxury you can imagine. While at the same time, judgment is coming and they haven't given it a second thought. It's woe to you who are like that. But then you get to chapters uh, 7, 8, 9, and things kind of shift a bit in those. And those are the chapters we're going to focus on uh, in our lesson tonight. You have these five visions that Amos receives, and they each uh, give a warning or a depiction of a judgment that is coming. They reveal what the plans of God are. So he's been talking a lot about these judgments that are coming. Now he's going to see some visions that illustrate what that judgment's going to look like. And so in our lesson tonight, we're going to look at these five uh, visions that Amos receives, and that'll kind of get us through the, the rest of the book of Amos, so that, so that today's a brief study of, of the book of Amos. Um, Amos chapter 7 and verse 1 begins the first vision. A couple things are noteworthy about it. We'll point out as as we go through. But uh, chapter 7, verse 1 says, Thus the Lord God showed me. And that's how you can tell a new vision is starting. Because he'll talk about what God showed him or or what he saw. Like chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord God showed me. Verse 4. Thus the Lord God showed me. Verse uh, verse 7. Thus he showed me. Chapter 8 and verse 1 thus the lord god showed me and then chapter 9 and verse 1 says i saw the lord and that last one kind of breaks the form a little bit but you still get the you still get the, uh, the idea of a vision that he's seeing of, uh, of destruction coming but in chapter 7 of verse 1 he says thus the lord god showed me and behold he was forming a locust swarm When the spring crop began to sprout, and behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. Okay, so he sees this vision of God forming a locust plague, a a, a swarm of locusts, and then the timing of it's interesting. It's when the spring crop began to sprout. So a couple of things here. One, whenever you think of like a locust plague— one of the types of things you should perhaps remember is, is the story of Exodus, uh, where that's one of the ways that God punished Israel's enemies. And you can read like the book of Joel, you can read the book of Revelation, and you'll see that locust plagues are a recurring theme in the Bible of devastation coming towards the people. Sometimes they may be literal locusts. Sometimes they may end up being symbolic of maybe armies that are coming or, or something like that, but a locust Plague truly was devastating uh, in an ancient agrarian society. It could ruin your whole year and give you nothing to eat that year. And a year after you have planned and planted and, and done all of the hard work, then as your harvest comes, locusts come through and destroy it all. Like, you're in a really bad situation. Your family's in a bad situation, especially if that happens to you and to your neighbor and to their neighbor and to their neighbor. And all of a sudden, you're, like, you're dependent upon foreign generosity or making deals with foreign nations, which is something you're not supposed to be doing. And all of a sudden, like, you're devastated if lo- locusts come. So when I think of locusts, I don't think of anything that's going to destroy my life usually. Uh, they did. Uh, there's good reason to think that. And there are places in the world today where that still happens, where locust plagues or swarms of locusts can be devastating to a, to a, 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 a region. Well, here, that's the image that he's starting to see. And he sees it, and it is important to note in verse 1, uh, remember this as we go through, that it was in the spring when the spring crop began to sprout. So just as the crop is beginning to sprout in the spring, just as it's all starting, he sees the forming of a locust swarm. So there's it hasn't happened yet, but the swarm is starting to form and the spring crop is beginning to sprout. And as Amos sees this in verse 2, it says and it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation, the, the vegetation of the land. That's when it comes and it does destroy it all. That, uh, that's the vision he sees. That I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. And then notice verse 3. Then the Lord changed his mind and it said, it shall not be, says the Lord. So he sees this image of like it all forming and starting and the spring crop beginning to sprout. And then he sees it all just get destroyed. And then he cries out to the Lord saying, please forgive or please pardon, depending on your translation there. How can Jacob stand? For he's small. He's like, Jacob isn't strong enough to withstand what you're planning on doing, God. Please forgive instead. And the Lord, and this is fascinating because you actually don't see any indication here of like a mass repentance among the people. You don't see, you know, the, the calls for repentance earlier in Amos. You don't see them do that. You just see that someone cries out, to the mercy of God, Amos does, and God says, "Okay." And God doesn't do it. And God forgives. Kind of reminds you uh, of, of Moses doing that same type of thing, or, or Abraham on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, pleading with God, and God being willing to listen and to hear and to be merciful. Uh, and and uh, you see uh, again, Moses does that same thing, and God at one point is going to blot out the children of Israel. But he says, okay, and he doesn't do it. And he ends up making a second covenant with him in the book of Exodus. Well, here you have Amos doing that, and the Lord changed his mind and says it shall not be. And that's the end of the first vision. So, to me, it's an important reminder of uh, the fact that Israel is acting sinfully and deserves punishment. Yet there's power in petition. There's power in coming to God and asking for forgiveness. And God really is graceful, merciful, and loving. And he did forgive, and he moved on to the second plague, or to the second vision uh, in verse 4. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord was calling uh, to contend with them by fire, and it consumed the great deep, and began to consume the farmland. So he has this picture of of fire coming, and consuming uh, the deep, consuming their farmland, consuming all of their crops, and everything like that. And, And it's a again, it's a picture of utter devastation for the people. And again, when Amos sees it, he says, Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. And he says the same thing again. And in verse 6, it says, The Lord changed his mind about this also. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. And so again, uh, an image, a vision of devastation. And he calls out to God for grace and for pardon. And God gives it. It's like You're learning that God, even though Amos is a really harsh book in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of, of judgment that is described in it. God's not quick to anger. God isn't quick to punish. He is quick to be forgiving. He is slow to anger. He is uh, over, he's, he's, he's abounding in loving kindness. Uh, God, that, I mean, that's who he is and that's how he acts and that's how he responds. Even in some of the harshest books in the Old Testament, that's how you'll see God act. But something else that's important to know about God is while he does forgive transgression and sin, he also does punish. He forgives, and he's quick to forgive. He is slow to anger, but he does eventually get angry. And if you let injustice and wickedness and oppression and greed and lust reign in your life, the Lord might be forgiving, might be patient. He might pardon, but if that continues, the Lord will eventually punish. You, you, can't, you can't thwart the justice of God forever and expect him to be okay with it. God does have wrath, and he does exercise it. Vision number three is where we get to that. In vision number three, this is what we talked about this morning. This is the plumb line. Uh, in chapter 7, of verse 7, it says, Thus he showed me. And behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, do you, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of the people Israel. I will spare them no longer. So now in this one, instead of Amos having the opportunity to cry out for God's grace and forgiveness... God is the one who speaks, and he says, I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated, and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste, and I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So uh, foreign armies are going to come in. This is going to be Assyria, and they're going to destroy northern Israel, and that happens. That happens in 722, 721 BC. that's, That's a historical event that we know about, and it was devastating, and the capital city of Samaria was overthrown, and uh, the altars at Dan and Bethel were destroyed, and, and the people were scattered among the nations, and, and it was a, devastate, a time of devastation for northern Israel. You see uh, occasional allusions and references from that point forward of some of the tribes to the north, but you never see Israel like, return again as a people uh, in in that land, who 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 own that land of the 12 tribes anymore. And so you see that uh, being promised right here, and that's what God is saying. Will happen. That's what the plumb line is. He's measuring them, and he's seeing that they're crooked. And so God's going to do something about that. Well, this morning we, we mentioned that that third one, you know, the first two... No one gets too upset about uh, the one where God spares them with the locust, and he spares them with, with the fire. But when he mentions in verse 9, I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam, that's when the priest hears of the preaching of Amos, and he goes and he tells the king, and then he tells Amos to go home. And that's where we have that confrontation we had this morning. But if you would skip over that for now, since we talked about it this morning, uh, you'll see that in verse, uh, chapter 8 and verse 1, you'll get to the fourth vision, And the fourth vision is very similar to the third vision. So like the first two are similar because it's a picture of devastation that God forgives and pardons. He's slow to anger. He loves them still. He's not going to act out quickly or or brashly against them. But then as they continue in their injustice and disobedience, you see the phrase in the third one, I will spare them no longer. Well, that phrase also appears in the fourth vision. The fourth vision is is really an interesting one. Uh, Chapter 8 and verse 1. says, thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Now, doesn't that sound nice? You know, (laughs) if you walked into your kitchen and there was a nice basket of summer fruit, you might think it was a good thing. Maybe it's a picture of God's blessing, or maybe it's a picture of of a a peace offering between God and man, and they can enjoy some nice summer fruit together. Um, That's not what this image means at all. Uh, remember we've been talking about the the patience of God and how in the early ones God forgave and he doesn't act out and he forgives and he doesn't act out but then eventually time runs out and he says I will not spare them any longer well when you get to verse 2 he says what do you see Amos he says I see a basket of summer fruit then the Lord said to me the end has come for my people Israel again the phrase I will spare them no longer You might think, well, what in the world does a basket of summer fruit have to do with that image? Uh, Well, a couple of things. Uh, One is, if you remember, the first vision in chapter 7, verse 1, it's he sees the forming of locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. Way back in the beginning of spring, when the crop begins to sprout is when the first one happens. Now you've gone through and you have had summer, you've had the summer harvest, you've had the the fruit picked, now you have a basket of summer fruit there. Time has passed, and God was forgiving in the beginning of spring, but now they're acting the same way at the end of summer, and it's time for punishment. So paying attention to the the timing of the things, of the season mentioned, is a clue. Another one is is one of those uh, clues that translators struggle with, um, because... There are, sometimes, um, there are sometimes things like in Hebrew or in Greek, the languages that the Old and New Testament are written in, that words mean certain things. All right. So like the word for uh, summer fruit, it means summer fruit, so you should translate it that way. And the word for end, it means end, so you should translate it that way. But in English, we hear no connection in our ears between the word summer fruit and the word end. They sound nothing alike, there's no play on words there. In Hebrew, however, there's a very clear play on words there. They sound almost the same, and they're written with, the, with uh, virtually the same consonants. And so they, they look like they're the same word, uh, subtle difference, and that's kind of intentional. It's like you see a, su- a basket of summer fruit, and you, you think, oh, well, that's something pleasant. But then you realize, wait a minute, summer is quite a bit past the spring, and you realize, wait a minute, that word summer fruit is actually a play on the word end. So the next thing he says is the end is coming. Uh, the word for summer fruit is kayets, The word for end is kates. And uh, they're going to look very similar. In and so you look at it and you realize that he's intentionally kind of playing with the words there. So that summer fruit comes to represent the end. God has been patient for a very long time but the end is coming now. And what is the end gonna look like? Well, verse three is a picture of it, and it's a, it's a tragic picture. It says, the songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord. Many will be the corpses in every place. They will cast them forth in silence. Um, so that's the image of the basket of summer fruit. It changes quickly from like a nice, pleasant, pretty basket to wailing and lamentation and corpses. Um, One thing that uh, you'll notice in verse 3 is when he says, the songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day. You're going to see that phrase. uh, That phrase becomes kind of the the foundation of the description of these events that's going to follow in chapter 8. You'll see a repetition of the phrase day or in that day or behold, days are coming. You'll see that kind of carried on uh, as more and more is described. But just as the third vision with the plumb line was followed by a kind of an interlude with, between the priest at Bethel telling Amos to get out of here. The fourth vision of the basket of summer fruit is going to be followed by an interlude, where it's basically a, a sermon against Israel for why this is happening. Why has the end come? Why, has the, why are, is God not pardoning any longer? Why are they now going to be punished? And you can see uh, that it will... Connect the themes that we've already been talking about throughout Amos. Like, it's not anything new, really, that's mentioned here. The same problems that we've been seeing from the beginning of the book are going to reemerge. In fact, some of them are going to be, like, almost direct citations from earlier passages in the book that are explaining why this is happening. So when you look at verse 4 through 6, here's where you get, in essence, the charges against them. He says, Hear this. Uh, that, that's, uh, if you remember uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5, they each begin with the phrase, Hear this word. Uh, he's about to call him again. Listen to this. This is what is happening. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the humble of the land. All the way back in chapter 2 and verse 7. When he's done that whole big circle around Israel, and then he says, but uh, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because you trample the needy and you sell, like that's the same phrase he used earlier in their very first condemnation in chapter two, he brings it up again. And he says, this is who you are. You're the people who trample the needy. You do away with the humble of the land. And this is what you say in verse five. When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales? You know, they're sitting there and it's like the new moon, the festival where they're supposed to be celebrating a new month from God and, and and the Sabbath, where they're supposed to be resting in honor of God. You know, they're not supposed to open the marketplace on the Sabbath, you know, they're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And what are they thinking? Are they thinking, I sure am glad God gave us rest? Remember back when our forefathers were slaves in Egypt and how we were given no rest? Well, now God has blessed us with the promised land. He's blessed us with wealth. He's blessed us with a society where we can have rest. We can spend time uh, meditating upon his goodness. We can spend time with family. Is that what they're thinking? No, they're thinking, oh, when is the Sabbath going to be over so I can go back to the marketplace and start making money again? Like that, that's, that's the mindset that they've developed. They can't take a day off. And what work are they doing in the marketplace? Well, they're making the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger. Uh, What they're selling, you get less and less of it, and they're charging you more and more for it. That way, the people who have money, I mean, they they can get by just fine. But the people who don't have money, they can't even get what they need from the marketplace anymore. And when they do finally get enough to get there, verse 5 ends by saying, "...and to cheat with dishonest scales." They're trying to measure, okay, so I need a pound of this, and that costs this much. So they get a pound, and they put it on there, and it says it's, uh, it's you know a pound and a half. And all of a sudden, they're like, well, no, that's actually a pound. You can't take that. And they're, they're using scales to cheat people to end up not only charging them more, but to, to be dishonest about how much they're getting. And so all of these things are taking place, and the rich are getting richer, and the poor are suffering more and more. And if you read the Torah... Israel was always supposed to be a society where, unlike the societies around them, the poor could do well there. If you, if you were going and, and reaping the harvest of your field, you actually weren't allowed to reap to the borders. And if you dropped something while you were reaping, you weren't allowed to pick it up. And there's very explicit reasons given so that other people who don't have as much, they can, they can help themselves to what you've produced. If God has richly blessed you, you should be willing to be generous and share that with others so that there will not be a needy person among you. And that's the actual language that's used in in the Torah, so that there will not be a needy person among you. It's like you're supposed to be sharing and, and helping one another, and God designed Israel that way, whereas in other cultures and societies, poor people would have nothing, and they could starve to death. That wasn't supposed to happen in Israel. You remember when Ruth, who had every reason in the world to starve to death, she was a widow, Uh, So she didn't have a husband to provide for, she didn't have any sons who could provide for, she was a foreigner, Uh, she was from Moab, she wasn't even from Israel, and she was there with an elderly mother that she had to take care of, she didn't have a job. What is she supposed to do? Well, Boaz was someone who had obeyed Torah and he had left part of his field for people in that very situation so that they could survive and they could have what they needed. And she starts off with the lowest level being a widow and a foreigner who is poor, but ends up, you realize throughout the book, God has been watching over her and God cares for her and God is helping her. And she ends up, Boaz reaches out to her and he cares for her and he offers some of his own property to her. He ends up marrying her, but like, That's a picture of the hope that even the impoverished are supposed to have. And when you read verses like Amos chapter 8 and verse 5, it's like, when can Sabbath end so I can get back to cheating people? That's a problem. That's why the basket of summer fruit is sitting there. Uh, Verse 6, he goes on to describe this mindset, so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, so that we may sell the uh, refuse of uh, the wheat. So again, the helpless people and the needy, they matter less than money and a pair of sandals. So what's God going to do about this? Well, as you read uh, the rest of chapter 8, it's not going to be good for Israel. Uh, There's going to be punishment coming. God has been patient with them because God loves them. God has forgiven them, even though they didn't deserve it. But eventually, time for punishment is coming. He sent them prophets also to help change their ways. Like, Amos is doing his job so that they will not continue to trend in this direction. God isn't just, you know, leaving them out there without a lifeline. He's doing what he can to reach out to them to get them to bring justice back into the land. And they refuse, and they refuse. So, chapter 8 and verse 9 He describes some of the things that will happen. It will come about in that day. There's that repetition of that phrase again. Declares the Lord God that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in the broad daylight. That might remind you a little bit of some of the Exodus imagery, right? He actually just mentions the Nile earlier in verse 8 too. So you're getting a lot of Egypt Exodus language that... Israel, when they were the oppressed poor people in Egypt, this happened to the people who were oppressing them. Now they have become the oppressors. And so now this is what's going to be happening to them. And so he mentions, uh, some things that remind us a lot of the plagues in verse 10. He says, I will turn your festivals into mourning so that all your songs become lamentations. And I will even bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on everyone's head, which didn't need to be mentioned. Um, but, uh, Then the end of verse 10 says, and I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son, and the end of it will be like a bitter day. That might also remind you of of the Exodus. Uh, Remember the 10th plague there. He's saying that's what's going to be happening in Israel. It'll be just like when Egypt was mourning. That will be what describes you. Verse 11, it's a really interesting uh, famine that he describes. He says, behold, days are coming declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, but not a famine for bread or of thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Remember that phrase, for hearing the words of the Lord. Um, People will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to south, and they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. So what you have being said here is, in essence, God's going to stop sending them prophets. You're going to have, like, they have the opportunity right now to hear the word of the Lord, to listen to it, and to obey it. But what happened in chapter 7 when Amos was up there and he was speaking the word of the Lord? What did their priest do? He came to him and said, go. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear you here. Uh, get, go back to Judah and don't do that. And so Amos, in chapter 7, to verse 16, says in response to the priest, Now hear the word of the Lord. That's why that's an important phrase. He actually says, no, hear the word of the Lord, and he tells it to him. And the guy doesn't want to hear it. And he says, go home, get out of here. And so now what's going to happen, tragically, is they're going to get their wish. God's saying there's going to be a famine in the land. It won't be for food or water. It'll be for hearing the word of the Lord. And you have the chance right now to listen to it. And instead, you're rejecting it. You're sending them home. And you are going after other gods instead. Verse 14 is a picture of the idolatry that you have going on there. Again, remember, Hosea focuses a lot more on the idolatry than Amos does, but it does pop up a couple times in Amos. And in the end of chapter 8, uh, verse 14, mentions some of that idolatry that's taking place. But then you get to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the, the fifth vision. Uh, this is one where there's not really... There's not really a clever image of it. There's not like locusts or fire or a a plumb line or a fruit basket. There's not a thing that you can look at. Instead, it's just an image of God destroying everything and the people trying to get away and they can't get away. And the Lord doesn't let anyone escape inescapable, fiery destruction is what the book of Amos in chapter 9 begins to picture. Uh, You can see the people fleeing in verse 2. Verse 1 says, They will not have a fugitive who will flee, nor a refugee who will escape. Verse 2 says, Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. Though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide in the summit of Carmel, I will uh, search them out and take them from there. Though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command my serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies... From there I will command the sword and it will slay them. Uh, What it's saying is you could go into the highest mountain, you can go into the depth of the sea, you can go up into the heavens, you can go deep into the earth, you can hide wherever you want, and there's no escaping from an omnipresent, all-powerful God. It's a terrifying image. He then begins to speak about Israel as no longer being his unique, special people anymore. They had the chance. Like they were given the covenant, they were given Torah to learn how to be the people who bear God's name well in the world around them, and they have forsaken it. So then he says in chapter 9 and verse 7 Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O house of Israel? declares the Lord. What he's saying is, when I look at you, I don't see any difference between you and these other nations, whether it's Ethiopia or some of these other ones he mentions here in just a minute. He says in verse seven, have I not brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt? And they say, yes, you did. That's our story. You brought us up out of the land of Egypt. That's the Exodus story. That's our foundation story of the love of God. But then he says, have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Arameans from Kerr? And we realize, wait a minute, has God done more than one Exodus before? Is Israel not the most special people in the world? Like, can God say that he loves them as much as Ethiopia? And yeah, they had an exodus out of Egypt, but the Arameans had an exodus. And all of a sudden, God is showing them that they have become like him to the other people. And they can't look back and say, but you freed us out of Egypt. God could say, I've freed a lot of people from a lot of places. Uh, That's something I do. Uh, and, And so they are beginning to see and to realize that God is not going to look with kindness on a sinful nation forever. Verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on a sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. But then notice the final phrase of verse 8. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. And all of the sudden, We've been seeing like gloom and doom and a lot of really uncomfortable passages to read and a lot of violence and a lot of just terror and, and frightening imagery. And then God says, nevertheless, I won't totally destroy the house of Jacob. He describes it as uh, putting wheat in a sieve and, and shaking it and none of the kernels falling through. It's like you get rid of the, the waste, but what you need is still there. And it's you get the impression that even in... even Though Israel has rejected God outright, over and over again, in obvious ways, they have been unjust, they have mistreated their neighbor, they have worshipped other gods, they haven't gone to Jerusalem, like, all of this stuff that they've done, he's still looking at them, and even though he's, like, just said, you guys are just like all the other nations now, he still sees a remnant that he loves and that he won't destroy. It's like you cannot get rid of the love of God. No matter what Israel tries to do, God's still going to find ways to be compassionate towards her. And then you get to the end of the book of Amos. And verses 11 through 15 are a picture of a future better day, of rebuilding, of, of restoration for Israel. And you end up getting this like beautiful imagery. Uh, verse uh, 11 in that day i will rise uh, raise up the fallen booth of david and i will wall up its breaches and i will also raise it from its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old earlier in chapter 9 and verse 1 he said smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them uh, on the heads of them all and like he talks about destroying the city and all the people fleeing but now he talks about rebuilding and he talks about rebuilding it as in the days of old. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations who were called by my name. And you come to find out that there are other nations called by his name. Uh, that, the word nations in, in Hebrew, goyim, uh, is the same word as, as Gentiles. Uh, you could translate it kind of whichever way you want to, depending on the context. Usually if you're talking about a specific nation, you'll say nation. Uh, but uh, in Greek, also nations and uh, Gentiles is the same word. And so what's fascinating about this passage is in Acts 15, the early church is having controversy about, all right, we've always been a Jewish movement, but now we have Gentiles entering in, and Paul's going out on these missionary journeys and teaching the gospel to Gentiles. Peter baptized Cornelius. That's all well and good, but what do the Gentiles have to actually do? What are the requirements of them becoming part of God's people? Like, Part of that requirement has always been circumcision. Is that still part of it? Do we have, do they, what, what foods do they have to eat? Like, they're asking those questions. And uh, James and Peter and, and Paul, they all speak. But James, he ends up quoting this passage right here to talk about God uh, being named even among the Gentiles. And uh, them all being welcomed and entering in. And so he uses the end of Amos as a picture of God's ultimately opening up the door of salva- to salvation to uh, these other peoples. And so, Amos ends on a completely different note than it has been uh, you know, sounding the entire time. There's a, a very famous uh, Old Testament scholar 19th century named Julius Wellhausen and uh, what, what he's probably most famous for is a book uh, that he wrote, a Prolegomena to the History of Israel, which uh, kind of you know, there's a theory about the Old Testament called the documentary hypothesis, and he writes a history about how all that works together, he's most well known for that. But he also has some writings on Amos, and uh, when he writes about this passage right here, he says that it's strange that Amos ends with lavender and roses after blood and iron. Uh, The idea is the entire book has been blood and iron. It's been a harsh book, but it ends with lavender and roses, and uh, He sees that as something that uh, is really hard to to square with the source material and stuff. I see that as evidence of the graceful God who never gives up on his people. Uh, And you see that time and time and time again. Uh, God rarely ends on a negative note. God generally ends with hope. As long as there is a God in heaven, there is hope on earth. And I think Amos is giving us that idea so that When you look at verse 14, we'll just finish reading the book and draw our lesson to a close. He says, Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them on on the land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. There's going to be blessing in Israel again. And so, and again, remember this is a passage that James, the brother of Jesus, uses in Acts 15 to describe the welcoming of Gentiles into the church in this, that glorious day. But here we have like every reason in the world for God to utterly wipe them out and destroy them. He does punish them, uh, the punishment's severe, but he doesn't give up on them. He promises a day of restoration. He promises a remnant that he still loves. He still sends a prophet like Amos in hopes that they will return to the grace of God. Even in the visions, the first two of them, he forgives them without any repentance on their part at all. He just forgives them out of his own sheer grace. Like That's the type of loving God that we serve. Don't neglect him forever. Punishment is real, and God does punish. However, no matter what you've done and no matter where you are, as long as there's a God in heaven, there is hope for you now. I think Amos ends with a beautiful message of never, never thinking that you're too far away to come back to God. Um, if there's anyone here who maybe you're looking at your life and you're farther away than you would like to be, There's a hope and a promise of restoration that you can have right here and right now. Uh, God is forgiving, he is gracious, and he is willing to uh, give salvation to each and every one of us here if we will but come humbly to him. Uh, So if you have the need, whether to ask for the prayers of the church and repent or whether to give your life to Christ in baptism, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.